Please leave your Bible open so you can keep me honest. Uh, it is a privilege to open God's Word together today. This is one of the uh, most important parts of of our week, and so um, I, uh, I trust the I trust the Lord to um, help us pay attention. I trust the Lord to help me speak words that are true and unfold this passage. Um, we're continuing through. The book of Matthew, we're seeing a lot of Jesus and uh, different different snippets, scenes from his life, and um, we have we have uh, another interesting one here in front of us today. Um, but I, w- I want to start with asking you a question, and um, depending on how old you are, I you, I can probably guess the, the the answer is yes. But um, I, have you ever have you ever wondered, have you ever uh, been concerned about whether or not you and God care about the same things? Have you ever wondered if you and God care about the same things? Um, what if you spend your whole life devoted to things that don't actually matter to God at all? Uh, worse than that, maybe, what if you spend your whole life devoted to things that you actually think are pleasing to him, and then you find out at the end that uh, he cared nothing for them. In fact, they had the the opposite effect. Rather than drawing you closer to God, they were pushing you further from the heart of God. Uh, you would want to know this if that were the case, and that's exactly what this passage is about, and I think it's in our Bibles for a reason to help guard us from uh, this tragic error. So, uh, with that question in view, um, before we jump into the passage, let's just pause and ask God for His help, understanding His Word, so that we might live according to His will. So, please join me in prayer. Father, we just want to acknowledge that this is a different kind of moment than the rest of uh, our lives when we read something. And um, you've told us that your word is alive. Many of us have experienced that, how it has the ability to get things done in us as we meditate on it. And so that's what I just ask, that as we meditate on your word together, that you would do things in us, that you would give us eyes to see things that are true, that you give us eyes to see things that are true of our hearts, as well as your word. I pray for your spirit's movement to, um, to speak to each of us in particular ways, that will bring you glory and be for our good. So help me as I speak. Help my friends as they listen. This uh, time is devoted to you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so the passage that was just read, starting in verse 34 of 14, and then uh, going through verse 20 of chapter 15, actually involves two distinct scenes. And um, the first one, just those few verses at the end of chapter 14, is is another brief summary statement of Jesus' growing reputation and his power to heal those who come to him in faith. Now, I'm not going to say very much about that at all other than to say it's worth noticing the contrast between uh, those who pursue Jesus in faith and those who pursue Jesus in unbelief. Um, but we're going to spend uh, our, our entire time looking at the, the scene that's, that's uh, laid out in chapter 15 for us. And um, 
And that, that, that's the scene that I think demonstrates very clearly the possibility of devoting your life to things that matter very little to God. So first we're going to walk through um, the scene together, verses 1 through 20, make some observations, and then we'll spend about the second half of our time uh, drawing some personal application for it, asking uh, more directly, what does this mean for us today? So that's what we're going to do. Um, so first, let's walk through this passage. Let's walk through verses 1 through 20 together. And um, what, what happens in this passage, you may have recognized as we read through it, is uh, Jesus talks to three distinct groups of people. And so that's going to kind of be um, how we're going to how we're going to outline our passage and, and, and as we pay attention to it. Jesus speaks to three distinct groups of people, and he has something different to say to each of them. Uh, Jesus discerns that each of these three distinct groups needs to hear something different from him. And so maybe as we go through it, you'll identify yourself somewhat with one group or another. Um, so the first thing that we see is there's a group of leaders that Jesus needs to confront. And so we're going to look at verses 1 through 9. Um, and we've got a group of leaders that, that Jesus needs to, to, to confront. So let's just... Let's just uh, lay the scene a little bit here. Um, we saw that Jesus was just in a place called uh, Gennesaret, and he just healed anyone who touched the fringe of his garment. Uh, before that, we saw that Jesus walked on H2O. And before that, we saw that Jesus fed somewhere between five and 20,000 people with a few pieces of bread and a few fish. Before that, Jesus talked about a day in the future when angels will come and separate evil people from righteous people and throw them into a fiery furnace. His words, not mine. And before that, Jesus was telling people what the kingdom of heaven is like as if he's been there. And that's just the last two chapters of Matthew. So, if you traveled miles and miles to stand in front of that man, what kind of question would you want to ask him? I don't know, maybe questions like, Jesus, what does it feel, what does water feel like when you walk on it? Maybe questions like, Jesus, when you just like make bread out of nothing, is it warm? Like, Jesus, when you just kind of create fish that have never actually swam in the water, do they still taste the same? Or maybe for some of us, the more pressing question would be, Jesus, you said that God knows every hair on our heads. Does that mean he knows less about me than he did 20 years ago? Maybe those would be stupid questions. But if you stood in front of Jesus and you traveled miles to stand in front of him, wouldn't you have some deep, awestruck questions to ask him? Like, who are you? Where do you come from? What must I do to be saved? But the Pharisees and the scribes, these religious leaders, these self-proclaimed guides to the blind, they traveled all the way from Jerusalem to stand before Jesus. And the question that they have when they get in front of him, is this. Jesus, why don't your disciples wash their hands before they eat? 
Let's read it again. Look at verse 1. The Pharisees and the scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem, and they said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. Here's what we need to understand to make sense of that question. First of all, um, the, the scribes and Pharisees have not traveled all the way from Jerusalem to warn Jesus and his disciples about the dangers of germ spreading. These, these, these religious leaders are not concerned with making sure that Jesus and his crew stay healthy so they can keep doing business. That's not what's going on here. Like we just read, what they're concerned about is that Jesus doesn't seem to be mind, doesn't seem to be giving any mind or care or concern or attention to this certain hand washing tradition that's been passed down through the religious ranks for years now. Now, the Old Testament did have certain hand-washing requirements for priests before they would go and do some of their religious duties. But that's it. There was no Old Testament word from God that said, before you eat, you must wash your hands like this for this amount of time in this exact way, the way that these religious leaders were were teaching and the way that they were demanding others do it. This is a man-made tradition that at least some people through the years, have begun to treat as if it's as important as, on the same level as, the actual word of God. And that's what Jesus wants to address first here. He's going to get around to answering their question in a minute. Actually, he won't actually directly answer them, but he will give an answer to their question. But first, he wants to address their hypocrisy. And he does it, as Jesus often brilliantly does, through a question of his own. Look at verse 3. Jesus answered them, and why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? So, it's not just that certain traditions are revered on the same level as the word of God, but Jesus says that these religious leaders are actually holding some of their traditions above the word of God more important, more authoritative than the word of God. And then they're leading others to do the same. So he goes on and gives this example in verse four. He says, for God commanded, honor your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, then he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you've made void the word of God, you hypocrites. So Jesus quotes from the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother, and he said, God said that. But your tradition says that people can tell their parents, what you would have gained from me, I've actually given to God. So you don't get anything from me. And then they're free to do what they want with their money. And they don't have to obey the fifth commandment. So Jesus is referring to a tradition that uh, one historian that I read described as sanctified selfishness is what this tradition was. So let's say a man wants to avoid giving money to his parents in their old age as they have need. Um, all that person had to do was to, to declare that at the end of his life, all his leftover money was, was going to go to the temple. And if he made that declaration then he could spend his money however he wants and then give, when he dies, whatever's left to the temple. But in the meantime, 
He could say, dearest mom and dad, I'm so sorry that you have needs right now, but your godly son has devoted all that he has to God. I'm sure you understand. Perhaps you'll be comforted by realizing you've raised such a godly son, but I'm sorry I can't help you. And that was okay. And you can kind of understand why those who, those who uh, would benefit from it the most were the religious leaders. So here's one example where a tradition of men has muted a commandment of God. And Jesus labels it hypocrisy. In fact, he goes further than that. And he says that the prophet Isaiah, who was prophesying, speaking God's words some 700 years earlier, still has something to say to these people standing in front of Jesus that day. And he quotes from Isaiah 29. Look at verse 7. He says, you hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, and then he quotes Isaiah 29, 13, this people honors me with their lips but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So to Jesus, when people honor God with the words they say, but then give more weight to the words other people say than to the words that God says, Jesus says their so-called worship is worthless, and that they prove that their hearts are nowhere near God in the first place. He says, you're hypocrites. And Isaiah was talking to you. And so with that, Jesus turns his attention away from the hypocritical Pharisees who needed to be confronted, and he addresses now a misguided crowd. And we see that the misguided crowd needs truth. So look at verse 10 with me. So then Jesus called the people to him, and he said to them, Hear and understand. It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. So Jesus gets around to answering the Pharisees' question, but he directs his answer now to to the misguided crowd who's being misled by these Pharisees. And he says, why don't we observe the hand-washing tradition of the elders before we eat? Because it's meaningless. Because what you put in your mouth does not make you unclean. What comes out of your mouth is what makes you unclean. So this gets to the heart of the Pharisees' hypocrisy that Jesus already called out. They'd created a bunch of new rules for themselves, above and beyond what God had commanded, And they thought that keeping these extra rules would contribute to their righteous standing before God. But what actually happened was that in their rule-keeping, they were setting aside what God actually cared about. They replaced the true religion of the heart with a cold, formal religion of outward duty. They decided to do more than God required in order to avoid what God desired. How tragic that many will stand before Jesus one day and say, Jesus, but I did this, and I did this, and I did this. And Jesus will look them in the eye and say, but I never knew you. In all your rule-keeping, 
religious duties, your heart has been far from me, and that's where it's going to stay forever. Depart from me. So in, in just these few words to the crowd, Jesus shines the light of his truth so that the misguided crowds could see more clearly. I might point out that when I say Jesus shined the light of his truth, I don't mean to imply that Jesus can have his truth, the Pharisees can have their truth, and the crowds can choose what feels true for them. That's the way our world likes to talk about truth. But the Bible knows no such truth smorgasbord. Jesus said when he prayed to his father in John 17, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. Or a little bit earlier in John 14, 6, he said, I am the truth. So Pharisees, scribes, crowds, people like us, we have the ability to embrace or deny truth, but we do not have the ability to create or define truth. So Jesus doesn't offer the crowd another take on morality or another road that leads to God. He's declaring in no uncertain terms that his interpretation of reality is the right one. But then we see that even his disciples need further clarification this day. But first, before they ask their clarifying question, we see that they, they want to make sure that Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. Look at verse 12. So after he's spoken to the crowds, he t- the, the disciples come up to him and they say, Jesus, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? Now, I'm going to give the, the disciples the benefit of the doubt here and assume that they didn't hear the whole Isaiah hypocrite heart, far, far heart thing. Maybe Jesus pulled the Pharisees aside for that. And what the disciples now are referring to is what Jesus just said to the whole crowd. What goes in is not what makes you dirty, what comes out. We're just going to give them the benefit of the doubt. But everyone heard Jesus say, "What goes? it's not what goes in, but what comes out that defiles a person. And Jesus has these perceptive disciples who come and pull him aside and say, Jesus, are you sure you want to offend the leaders? But Jesus, we see, is not interested in smoothing things over with the leaders. To the contrary, he offers what was probably a very surprising dismissal of the Pharisees altogether. Verse 13, Jesus answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. So Jesus, are you sure you want to offend the religious leaders like that? Jesus says, let them alone. Let the blind lead the blind straight to their own destruction. So you can see from this question, the disciples, Jesus' disciples are still a little bit conflicted, right? They've decided to follow Jesus, but they're not entirely sure if they're ready to write off the religious leaders, the traditions, the bigwigs. Are we just really, Jesus, are we just really writing off the Pharisees altogether? You can kind of see them wrestling with this. Jesus says, let them alone. Are we really saying that all the rules and traditions that we've been raised with just like don't matter, don't have any bearing on our lives anymore? Jesus says, let them alone. Be freed from the burdens they've put on you. See, the hypocritical leaders needed confronting, the misguided people needed truth, and the conflicted disciples needed freedom. 
Jesus tells his disciples that the leaders and teachers that they and so many others have looked up to and listened to for so long are not the planting of the Father. And just like the weeds from the parable Jesus told earlier, they will soon be rooted up and seen for what they are, not the planting of God, but the planting of God's enemy. It's time for the disciples to move on and be free. It might be hard for us to get our minds around how disorienting that must have been for the disciples in that moment. And as they try to get their bearings, try to grasp what Jesus is saying, Peter steps up and asks for clarification about what he refers to as a parable, which is simply Jesus saying, it's not what goes in that makes you dirty, it's what comes out. Verse 15, Peter steps up and says to Jesus, will you explain the parable to us? Our brains are hurting, Jesus. Tell us exactly what you mean when you say that what comes out of the mouth defiles a person. So he answers in verse 16. Jesus said, Are you also still without understanding, Peter? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defiles a person. To eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. So this man-made religion that said you could keep yourself clean before God by performing these outward duties and rituals like washing your hands in a certain way before you eat. Jesus responds to borrow the words that God once spoke to the prophet Samuel. He says, the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Now, I want to let you in on a little secret. Maybe you've had a footnote kind of give it away for you, but your Bible most likely sanitizes Jesus' language here, what he says to the disciples. What he literally says is, don't you see that whatever you put into your mouth goes into your stomach and then out into your toilet? Don't you see that what you put into your mouth simply goes in your mouth, to your stomach, to your toilet? And I don't think this is Jesus using potty humor with the guys for a laugh like I sometimes do. I think this is Jesus being as graphically clear as he can that what passes from your dirty hands into your mouth, into your stomach, into your toilet, into the sewer under your house is less defiled, less disgusting, and less offensive than much of what flows out of your heart. Think about that. Jesus is making a point. Things like evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander, the list could go on. Jesus says, don't you know that's way more offensive than anything that lands in your toilet. 
There's the point. The answer to the Pharisees' question that started this whole scene. And then that's how the scene ends. That's all Matthew wants us to see here. That's all he wants to see before he moves on to the next scene. So before we leave this scene, I want to ask the ever-important Bible reading question, well, what about us? What about us? So let's spend a few minutes talking about what this, what this says to us, how we can respond. So we're going to transition now to three points of personal application aimed at our own hearts that flow straight from this passage. So the first point of application, I think, for us here is, uh, number one, beware pharisaical hypocrisy in your own heart. Beware pharisaical hypocrisy in your own heart. It's one thing for us to look at the Pharisees and say, yeah, you hypocrites. It's another thing for us to pause and say, what about me? So the charge against the Pharisees was that they revered the word of man over the word of God. They claimed to be on good terms with God, even though their lives reflected a rejection of his commandments and his priorities. So their worship, Jesus called worthless. Functionally, they made void the word of God, even though they claimed to live by it. These are tragic errors, and they're not confined to people who are called Pharisees, who are actually called Pharisees. There is a possibility to have lips that honor God and hearts that are far from God. So what might we want to look for as we examine ourselves and pay attention to our own hearts? My guess is most of us probably don't hold to a hand-washing ritual before we eat, at least not one that we think is going to make us righteous before God. I'm not against hand-washing rituals. I commend them, in fact. I just don't commend assuming that that makes you righteous before God. Just assume that it might keep you physically healthy. Most of us don't have a hand-washing ritual. But people like me can be pretty good at evaluating our relationship with God based on external duties or certain checklists based uh, rather than worship that's, that's from the heart. I confess to being pretty good at that. Sometimes it's easier to do more than God requires than it is to give ourselves to what God actually desires. So there's another confrontation coming between Jesus and the Pharisees a little later in Matthew where he's going to again challenge them on their scrupulous attention to lightweight religion while ignoring what Jesus calls weightier matters of the law. Things like justice and mercy and faithfulness. He says, you guys care about the details of these little things down to the details, the nitty-gritty, you add all these, this extra, and you don't care about the things that matter most to my Father. Could Jesus put that same challenge question in front of you? You might be the busiest, most disciplined, diligent, never-resting, good habit keeper in this room. And yet your heart might be light years from God. Your worship might be empty in God's eyes. 
And you're probably exhausted. And it's all worse than for nothing. It's actually keeping you, all your duties, all your habits, all your traditions, all the things you're scrupulous about might be keeping you from sitting before God and bringing him your actual heart. Might be keeping you from letting God's word wash over you, leading you to heart-level repentance, heart-level faith, heart-level worship. Or maybe you've worked out a different version of neglecting the commandment for the sake of tradition. Maybe it's not honor your father and mother that you're neglecting, though maybe it is. But instead, maybe it's the commandment that comes right before that, the fourth commandment, where God said, observe the Sabbath day and keep it holy. You know God said it. You know that the Pharisees got it wrong by adding all sorts of rules and restrictions to it. You know that Jesus somehow fulfilled it. But beyond that, you basically just go to church most Sundays when it's convenient, live the rest of your life, your days, your weeks, ignoring God's invitation slash command to a weekly day of rest and true worship and true devotion to him. After all, we've got worship albums and podcasts. Or what if we just use God's, Jesus' summary statement of the Ten Commandments, of the law, the second half, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, sure, Jesus said that, but I come from a tradition where we don't actually love people that are on the other side of the political aisle than us. Surely Jesus doesn't expect that. There's lots of ways that we can set aside the word of God for things that benefit us or that are our preferences. The question isn't, do you have traditions? Because traditions aren't inherently bad. We all have traditions. Maybe we could even call them habits. The question is, for the sake of something that matters to you, are you neglecting something that matters to God? For the sake of something that matters to you, are you neglecting something that matters to God? That's the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, and it might reside in your heart or in my heart. We too run the risk of having clean hands but distant hearts. That's the first point of application. Second one, Beware blind guides. Beware blind guides. So there's not only the danger of cultivating hearts like the Pharisees, but there's also a danger of following blind guides like the Pharisees. Now, whether you're young or whether you're old, we live in a period of history where this has never been easier to do. It has never been easier to follow blind guides than it is today. We have access to countless guides telling us how we should live, how we should think, how we should feel, who we should hate. And with merely the click of a button, we can follow them. And just because millions of people are following them doesn't mean they know where they're going. Teenagers, I'm going to speak directly to you. I'm going to throw in young adults. You guys can listen to. Give careful, prayerful consideration to who gets your attention, online or elsewhere. Teenagers, you are, by virtue of simply being a teenager, at least blurry-eyed, if not legally blind. That's not an insult. 
We've all been teenagers. You're at least blurry-eyed, if not legally blind, and you are being shaped by whoever you're paying attention to. Don't make the mistake of believing that you are not easily influenced or easily misled. Countless teenagers are being led by blind guides right now. And Jesus said that when the blind lead the blind, it doesn't end well. Are your guides blind? How might you know? Here's a few questions you might want to ask. I think they'll show up above my head. It's not important that you write them down, but I think questions like this might help you. Are my blinds, are my guides blind? Ask yourself, is he or she leading me to put more of my trust in Christ and less of my trust in myself or anyone other than Christ? Is he or she faithfully interpreting, exalting, and living by the words of the Bible? Is he or she humble and self-denying and living for the glory of Jesus and the good of others? Does he or she reflect a love for following Jesus or a love for being followed? Are your guides blind? Now I'm back to talking to all of us. Blind, blind guides come in all shapes and sizes. Some blind guides will lead you to devote yourself to habits and traditions that go beyond what God's word ever commanded, very religiously, living above the line of scripture, we might say. Some blind guides will lead you to disregard or rebel against any hint of authority outside of yourself and what feels true for you, living below the line of Scripture, we might say. But whether they're leading you to, to, to do more than the Scripture says or less than the Scripture says, they're both blind guides. Both are leading toward a pit. And Jesus has something to tell us. Jesus tells us what to do with them. He says, let them alone. Let them alone. Don't go near them. Don't only sort of listen to them. Don't even worry about offending them. Let them alone. Let them alone and follow me instead, Jesus says. And if you're looking for other people to learn from, find people who are humble, contrite in spirit, and tremble at God's word. Follow them as they follow Jesus. I don't care if we're talking about a pastor, a podcaster, a celebrity, an influencer, a therapist, an author, a parent, a dear friend. If he or she is leading you toward a pit of unbelief, dismissing the word of God, self-righteousness, self-glorification, self-worship, robbing Christ and his cross of glory, then let them alone quick. just like it was for the disciples that day, this might be incredibly disorienting for some of us. Because we've grown very accustomed to trusting reliable, sounding, credible, seeming, impressive people. But hear and understand, every plant that the Heavenly Father has not planted will one day be rooted up. Keep your distance. Let them alone. Third point of application Beware defilements of the heart. 
Beware defilements of the heart. I want to talk to two different groups of people in different ways on this last point. First, if you're listening and you're not following Jesus. If you're listening and you're not following Jesus, I'm glad you're listening. And I hope that you've noticed that Jesus has just put a really big problem in front of you. Whether you're super religious and dutiful or the exact opposite, Jesus says you have a heart problem. It's unclean. And if you need proof, he says, just pay attention to the stuff that comes out. Could be things like evil thoughts, sexual immorality, slander. Could be that those things don't even register to you as a big deal. But you need to hear that they're a big deal to God. And they're the kinds of things that Jesus says flow out of a heart that's far from God. Let me tell you some good news that Jesus doesn't jump into just yet in our passage. Jesus, the same one who just told us this heart problem that we have, is on his way, as we work through the book of Matthew, to laying down his life, dying on a cross in order to cleanse you of your heart problem. In order to pay the penalty for the problem of your sinful, defiled heart. Jesus never had an evil or hateful, murderous thought. He never gave in to sexual temptation. He never slandered anyone with his mouth, but he died as if he was guilty of all of it. And he did it so that people like us who are guilty of all of it might be washed clean. So if you're here and you're not following Jesus, pay attention to what Jesus just said about your heart. And I invite you to come to him to solve that problem. Because he's the only one that can. You could scrub yourself up better and more frequently than the Pharisees, and you'll find what I fear many of them found at the end of their lives. It was not enough. No amount of hand washing, no amount of do-gooding can scrub a dirty heart clean. Jesus says to all of us who are guilty, come, find forgiveness and cleansing in my blood. You can be cleansed today. Second group of people are those who are following Jesus. I know there's a lot of us in this room. Two things for you. Number one, rejoice. Your defiled heart is clean. Your defiled heart has been washed by the blood of Jesus. Rejoice. Don't stop rejoicing. In fact, I'd encourage you to rejoice all the more, the more you run into how defiled and messed up your heart actually can be. All the filthy things that have come out of your heart have been paid for and not by you. Rejoice. Number two, keep putting sin to death in your life. We've been washed, we've been cleansed, and then we have the benefit of the rest of the New Testament where Paul can unravel more than Jesus said here in chapter 15. And he tells us that as those who have been cleansed, as those who have been washed in the blood of Jesus. He says, don't keep living in your sin now. Colossians 3, I think this will show up above my head. Here's from the Apostle Paul. He says, put to death, therefore, Christian, what is earthly in you? Things like sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. 
In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Don't lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices, and you've put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Paul says, if you've died with Christ and been raised a new life with him, which is what it means to be a Christian, then your life should be characterized by killing the sin that once defiled you. Killing the sin that Jesus has cleansed you from. If you're here and you're a Christian, you feel like you're losing the battle in your heart against some particular sin. I want to remind you today that what we're called to as Christians is a daily putting to death the deeds of the flesh. And if God has commanded us to do it, you can be certain he can give you the strength, the ability to do it. There is no sin that is too strong for a child of God. The call for us is keep up the fight. Because we both know that there's nothing more disheartening than trying to follow Jesus while still trying to cherish sin in our hearts. So those are three categories for personal reflection based on this passage. Perhaps the Holy Spirit has highlighted something else to your heart that I haven't said, but as we transition to taking the Lord's Supper, I want to invite, or even maybe stronger, I want to um, exhort you to respond to God's word and whatever subtle or strong movements of the Holy Spirit in your heart. If you're going to serve the Lord's Supper, would you kindly make your way forward? So we're going to respond, as we always do, uh, to the to the word that we, to the preached word, and um, Here's a few things. There's going to be four people up here. And what they're going to do, if you come up to take the Lord's Supper, they're going to remind you that Jesus has cleansed you. They're going to remind you that Jesus has laid down his body and shed his blood for the forgiveness of your sins. Let the body and blood of Christ astound you and strengthen you again today.